Hey everybody, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks once again for joining us. Get ready for another sensational episode, this time featuring an exciting insider from the world of music. Our guest today is Corey Churko, an extremely talented vocalist and musician who holds a unique position as band leader for the international superstar Shania Twain at her Las Vegas residency, a position he has also held with Kelly Clarkson while touring. Corey has also worked with a long list of international superstars, including Elton John, Britney Spears, the Backstreet Boys, Reba McIntyre, and many, many more. And today, Corey joins us from his home in Los Angeles, California, to share with you his adventures in the music industry and bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Hey, Corey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Mick, long time. I think it's been decades since we talked. You know, yeah, I know it's been it's been unbelievable. I was going to say uh, we when we I, I was actually thinking in my head. Correct me if I'm wrong. The last time I think we were actually in the same room together was my garage. Yes, that's right. Well, what were you doing? Something, yeah, something with Pro Tools we were doing, right? No, I didn't oh, have Pro Tools yet. Well, what what, what was we, it? No, Cakewalk. We, we I still had my little Yamaha four track cassette player, and that was wow. way. That was way before Shania, way before Shania for you. Yes. Uh, I think you might have been going to university or, or taking a course in uh, graphic, or was it 3D art? 3D yeah. Computer animation. That's yeah. right. Yeah, sorry about that. And, yeah. and you came over and played fiddle for, thank God I'm a country boy. That's what it was. <laughs> uh, I couldn't remember. I couldn't I know. Remember. I was actually going to bring it up and play it for you. And I went, ah, I won't do that for you. That's hilarious. <laughs> I, still, I know. I still okay. have it. And what was the project that it was? I can't remember you were- Oh, it was just was background, your, it was just background were, tracks. It was background yeah. tracks for doing oh. solo work. Oh, okay. And, you know, you can't do Thank God I'm a Country Boy without that fiddle part. Right. Was that, John, exactly. was that John Denver that played the fiddle on that? No, I don't think so. Because I read his... somewhere that he was the fiddle player on it. Well, maybe, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. It, Crazy. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I, I, I sort of prepared some notes on you and stuff, and there's a lot to cover. So I, I sort of want to go back, like back, back. Like you were born in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, correct? That's right. And Moose for Jaw. all these people that don't know where that is, if you go into the middle of Canada, there's Regina, Saskatchewan, which is the capital city. And Moose Jaw is about, what is it about? Is it 30 or 90 miles from it is exactly, and it's getting smaller all the time because Regina is expanding, but it's 45 miles. 45. Okay. I was, okay. Yeah. Sort of in between. 72 kilometers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Last time I was in, last time I was in Moose Jaw, I couldn't believe the changes in there. They got all of those Al Capone tunnels and caves from back of the, oh, it's, it's pretty fascinating what they've got going on there. It's great, actually. And if you, if anybody gets a chance to go through Moose Jaw, definitely stop and do that because it's very interesting. Yeah, I, my my last memory of Moose Jaw. Was there ever a place called the Harwood Hotel when you were growing up there? Totally. Yeah, yep. I played there. That and, was a great uh, place. And you know, you know the drummer in my band at that time, Brian Armstrong, because you played for it with him for a bit. Good old Brian. Weekend. Yeah, with his weekend band. Well, we had. You were in Shama. I, that's correct. Ah, we we played the Harwood Hotel. And brothers, you know, nobody was attached to anybody at that time. We were still young, roving guys. And there was this, a Kochek girl who was quite good looking. And I think her and Brian hit it off. And so she, no, not just, just nice, nicely, not, not, okay. in, any kind of sex, not in any kind of sexual. Okay. Yeah. And so she had, she invited Brian and anybody else in the band to go to this party on, um, 
on a Saturday night. I think it was, no, it must've been a Friday night. It doesn't matter. But, and so that's great. So basically we waited until she got off work and there was me and Jeff and Brian. We get into the van with this girl, our, our van. All of a sudden a garbage can hits the side of our van. And oh I guess there was some guy who had major crush on this girl. And so anyway, to make, to make a long story short, the police were involved and stuff. The police wouldn't charge any of these guys because between the three of them, their fathers owned most of the downtown of, of, of uh, Musha and they wouldn't charge these guys because we were the traveling minstrels who were charging, who, who were causing the problem. Right. Anyway. Wow. You guys that was tore up Musha. Yeah. That's yeah. a rock. That's a rock and roll story right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, totally. so, so now I, I remember Corey, you had said that you had played in a family band, but I didn't realize how extensive it is. Do you mind telling people about that? Yeah. So uh, the band was my dad, my mom, my sister, and my brother and myself. And my first gig with the family band was when I was seven years old. I played at my um, Aunt Delphine's wedding and I made 20 bucks for a seven-year-old man. That was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and I, we, we actually, we toured all over Canada. Um, I think I, I left school at age 12 and did all my school right through grade 12 um, on the road. So, so you had like a tutor? Um, no, I just taught myself through the, it was called the uh, Saskatchewan Correspondence School. They had a curriculum and they just had lessons. You just read through the lessons and you just kind of learn from reading. And that's probably why I like reading manuals to this day. <laughs> wow yeah which i'm totally the opposite i'm i'm total i'm total tactile okay. i try to figure it out with my hands and if i need yeah. any help then i go to the manual right know? right that's not a bad way either but i was gonna say so because i i when i read that i couldn't believe it you actually your father took you guys out of school to go on the road yeah that's right what? he was he was actually a music teacher in the catholic school systems and um, so he taught in classrooms there. And at a certain point, he's like, you know, we played so many wedding dances and we were getting, you know, fairly good. I mean, we thought we were good, but we we're just a bunch of kids, obviously. But he decided to take us out of all, take us out of school and quit his job at the school system. And we went out to Ontario because the liquor laws were different there where you could play in a, in a tavern or a bar underage as long as you left on your break, right? Uh, Saskatchewan didn't have the same laws. You could play in lounges in Saskatchewan, but lounges was, it was basically a bar where they served food, like a restaurant, right? Yes, I remember so that. That was fine, but there wasn't as many places to play. So in Ontario, it was wide open. And, uh, so we, you know, he took the whole group out there and we went as far as like Prince Edward Island and played Manitoba and Alberta and, and uh, Saskatchewan. That was inter that's interesting because... Um, me and Michael Sacoli, I'm sure you know Michael as yeah. well, uh, and and a friend of ours named Tim Hewitt was a drummer. We had a we had a house gig at a at a club in Sault Ste. Marie, ah. and we got busted. I was oh. 15 and they were 16, and I, maybe there's a, a special permit your dad had to have, or possibly you had to have a chaperone because we weren't allowed to be in that bar. We were. Well, I wonder if the liquor laws changed, like. How what year might have talk? what year was that do you know this was oh god this would have been probably i'm thinking 74 yeah so okay. i was there in like 82 yeah. 83 yeah so it might have changed because as far as i know because even like the even the bar owner would go hey you guys make sure you leave on the break because the liquor um guy is coming and we want to make sure we're playing it all by the book so so they knew we were underage obviously we were a family 
And that's uh, incredible. And a lot what? of times we didn't leave on the break. You know, we just hung out and stuff. But yeah, yeah. Technically, quote unquote, you left. Exactly. If the police ever came or if somebody look out, hey, they're coming out the door, yeah. you go. And then when I got to be like 17, maybe 16 years old, um, the band started playing more in Saskatchewan in the bars there. And I remember I actually had took an, an eye, eyeliner pencil or like ma uh, not mascara, but eyeshadow maybe. And I would like color it in to make it look like I had a bit of a five o'clock shadow. It was <laughs> completely ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, got the job done and we played the gig and left with the money. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, I just find that I just find it incredible that you actually your dad took you out and you guys homeschooled yourselves right yeah. through to high school, like to graduation while playing. And that's a six night a week job, I take it. Yeah, it was. You know, you do you play six nights and two shows on Saturday, of course, because they'd have the matinee or the jam session, whatever they called it there. Right. Well, that was a, it was a lot of work, but, it, you know, it was a lot of fun. And that's, you know, why I have you know, what I have done now is because that sort of was where I cut my teeth and got me ready to do what I'm doing now. And also there's, I think there's a newspaper clipping. You won some sort of Fender guitar thing or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, so you were a hot shot even when you were young. <laughs> I, I, it was all about the music. You know, I was, I was uber focused even from a very early age. And, and, and obviously that ran in the family because your brother Kevin has had a fantastic career as well. Yeah, he's he's big time uh, rock producer. He produced uh, Ozzy Osbourne, co-wrote, you know, his, his last two records. Yeah. And of course, now he's a big time metal producer and actually selling millions of CDs. Nobody does that anymore, but he's still doing it in, uh, that, no, in that genre. Is that, uh, so in that genre, do people still buy them or are, are these uh, these are actually bought over the Internet and yep. not sold at shows only? Well, they, they might do that as well, but um, I think it's the demographic, you know, where people still have seat. They love to have CDs, some tactile and some they can read the credits on and bands like uh, Five Finger Death Punch uh, yeah. and Disturbed, you know, all those real heavy sort of metal acts. Uh, he's now producing those and he's and, doing and, really well. And his son, well, your nephew as well. I mean, he's he's big time into it, too. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He's his he's his partner in crime, you know, and. He, his name's Kane and he's my nephew. And, uh, you know, his first uh, recording rig was a full on blown, full blown Pro Tools rig. You know, most of us are like, like you said, you had a cassette recorder. Yeah. But because he grew up with my brother and, you know, he was doing that kind of stuff. He had all the gear at his disposal right from a very early age. Now, I don't want to go on this for too long. I know maybe I'll have Kevin on the show. I never know. But I, I, I wanted to touch on this. Now, Kevin, did he not work with Mutt Lang for a while? Yeah, totally. And did that come as a result of you being with Shania? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. And so, so it was one of those things where you sort of said, hey, my brother is a great producer. You, you could use a hand with him or what? That connection yes. was made that way? So after the first Shania tour, I was just having a drink in a hotel lounge or whatever. And um, she said to me, you know, Mutt needs a Pro Tools guy in his studio, uh, would you like to do it? She actually offered me the job, but at that point, I hadn't done any Pro Tools at all. It was all like Logic on a PC, maybe even Cakewalk, you okay. know? So I wasn't really up to snuff on my studio skills. I'd been on the road and um, playing clubs, whatever. But he, Kevin had just spent like five or six years doing nothing but studio stuff with Pro Tools. And he's always had a real aptitude for being an engineer, even from a very early age. So... So he, uh, I said, I can't do it. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it, but 
my brother Kevin is doing it. You should, you know, maybe ask him if he wants to do it and check him out. So they actually flew him over to meet Mutt and they got off famously uh, and the rest is history. He worked, he did a, a, the Up album with, he programmed all the studio stuff uh, for Shania. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then after that, he moved back to the, over here and got got a visa in the states and started his career as a big time metal producer. Unbelievable! How long was he with Mutt? Uh, it was two two years. He actually moved his whole family over to Switzerland because that's where they were living. Right. And um, yeah, and they had you know rented a house there, and he just worked every day with Mutt. Yes, but incredible. but the cool thing was, uh, we we pitched it. We said, hey, it would be great if I could go over there as well and sort of tag team with you and I could learn the ropes. You could tell me what to do. We could pitch it that we would, you know, be able to do more work for them in less time. And they, they totally, you know, bought it. And we, I, I went out there for, you know, five months, six months. And I was working on like Celine Dion and uh, Britney Spears stuff, the cores, whatever Mutt was working on at the time. And I was just, you know, learning from my brother what to do in Pro Tools. And that's when I, came back and, and um, started to do more of that on my own. Oh, my God. So this goes even deeper than I thought. Yeah. That's, that's wow, it's incredible. Like, talk about connecting the dots. Yeah, so- in, fact, in fact, at that point, I, I got my green card to live in the United States, uh, which I had applied for on the first Shania tour. I got the green card, so I had to move the States. I didn't have a job or anything, but my wife and I packed up from Vancouver and went down to Los Angeles and I had one phone number, and that was Mike Shipley, who was a big time. Um, he was kind of Mutt's right hand man in the Def Leppard days, okay. uh, doing all the mixing and for the Cars and Def Leppard, and he actually did some stuff with Maroon Five later on. And I called him because it's the only person I knew in LA, and said, "Hey, Mike." And and at that time, I you know I did have some Pro Tools chops because I'd been working with Mutt a little bit. I said, "I'm I just moved to LA, and I had you know." Um, if you need a Pro Tools guy or anything like that, give me a call. I'm looking for work. And Mike said, uh, I don't need anybody now, but I'll let you know. Uh, hung up the phone and like 30 minutes later, he says, can you be down here in like an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes. And so that started a whole two-year uh, thing where I was in the studio every day in LA uh, working out of Record One Studios, which is a, you know, I think it's a partner co-owned with Oceanway Studios. And Dr. Dre was locked out on one side and, and we were locked out on the other. And I was just doing artist after artist after artist, doing all the Pro Tools stuff for Mike Shipley as wow. he was mixing the stuff. Well, my, my Spidey sense are saying that when you first got a hold of him, he, he must have used that 30 minutes to figure out and co- make some calls to make sure you were the guy he wanted. It, it could have been that. Or um, I think he was just getting to work for the day. And they were doing a, an Aerosmith recall because he had, he had mixed some stuff for Aerosmith. And, and then I, I forget who it was, GM or somebody like that wanted to use stems from that to use in a new TV commercial. So they had to recall a previous mix and they had all the tracks on Pro Tools, but they didn't have anybody to set them up uh, you know, on the Pro Tools computer. So that's kind of when I went over and and set that up for them. And then we just hit it off. Mike was such a great guy and, and we laughed a lot and had a lot of fun and played a lot of foosball, uh, almost too much when we should have been working. <laughs> We'd go out to the studio lounge and play foosball. Uh, and, uh, and then I got a lot of, a whole lot of ex- uh, studio experience from that. Wow. I, I, well, 
I, I don't know Kevin as well as I know you. And I think the reason I know you more is I, maybe because you were a guitar player. Or we, maybe you and I hit it off. But I remember Kevin was a, a great drummer, too. Yeah, really great really drummer. That whole band was amazing. Now, uh, now, when I first met you, you were doing the Explorers. Now, was it called Frank's Place in Richmond? Was it, oh, the, man. Or was it called Gators? I, thank you. No, it was totally Frank's place. Because and I totally had forgotten that, that club's name. And I, I was going to bring it up that that's where we were in some kind of band wars competition and you guys were hosting or, or judging or I can't remember what it was. We were playing there for the week. Right. Okay. And I remember being like, you guys were like by and large miles above any other band and everybody in that band. No, that was pre Mike Norman. Who was the fourth person in that configuration? Uh, if there was a fourth person, it was probably a guy named Steve George, who was another guitar player. Okay. And we didn't I, have a keyboard player before Mike. Or, or I, wait a minute, maybe we did. Maybe it was Ross Nikiforic. It could have been yeah. Ross, who only was with us a short time, and then he got um, stolen by the Northern Pikes, which was a great gig for him. Okay, I'm not sure about that. I, I, totally. I, I remember talking to you. And I said, man, everybody in this band is like a superstar. And you said, yeah, but we've got a keyboard player coming over from the island that you're going to be blown away with. And that was Mike Norman. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, and, you know, bless his heart. I mean, I, what, a, what a sad story, man. One, yeah. of the, one of the best musicians I've ever met in my life, the, most su the sweetest guy. Mm -hmm. And he always had time for everybody. Totally. Super you know, nice he could guy. be in the middle of, a, of 13 things. And if you call them, he'd spend 50 minutes to half an hour talking to you before he'd say, okay, I have to go now. But, you know, yeah. meanwhile, he's probably doing charts while he's talking to you. He's just one of those kind of guys, you know? Yeah. Super busy guy. Super talented. Great voice. Yeah. Uh, great sax player. Great keyboard player. And he was exactly what we needed for, you know, our band at the time, which was the Explorers. Yeah. So now do you remember what year that was? I was just talking to John off camera uh, about what, what year I might've met you. And I'm trying to figure out what year that might've been. Was so, that, that would have been the nineties at some point. So the band wars, it would have been 91 or 92. Okay. Yeah. Because I actually have a little poster because our band actually went on to win the national part of the competition. And I think it says 92 on the poster. And so it would have been that year or just the previous year. You want to know how much you, you struck me? How I much? remember that one of your original songs was called Hands. <laughs> Hands. Yeah. <laughs> because I remember you introducing, because I was watching you guys, I'm going, wow, these guys can really play. This is like amazing. And it's good, good original material. Yeah. And I remember you introducing the song and I even remember the name of the song. That's, that's how much you drew me in. Wow, like that's was, amazing. That yeah. song was in seven, eight time, by the way, which was the first time I'd played anything like that before. But my brother, Kevin, wrote that, you know, started okay. that song. And then we all collaborated after that. Oh, cool. And yeah. so now, now, when did you move to Vancouver, by the way? Uh, Vancouver was in 89. So you moved from Moose Jaw to? Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of on the road, but Moose Jaw was sort of the hub at that time. Was it like a no fixed address type of thing? Did you guys have a, a home in Moose Jaw all the time? Yeah, we had a home in Moose Jaw, but, you know, we were on the road, like, pretty much full time. Um, I think uh, I, my segue into Vancouver was getting a gig with a guy named Carson Cole. I don't know if you remember him, but Thank he you. was he was managed by Larry Wanagas. Oh, remember okay. Yeah. Larry at Bumstead, yeah, who yeah. also was Katie Lang's manager, right? Correct. So I got a call from his secondary manager to play with Carson while I was still in the family band on the road. I think I was in Red Deer at the time or something. I got this call 
And we were already planning on moving to Vancouver anyway. So it was just amazing stroke of luck that we got, that I got this call and a gig already waiting for me in Vancouver. They wanted me to play guitar. And because the family band was breaking up, you know, my, my parents always said, once you graduate from grade 12, then you can go on and do your own rock project. That was always the plan. My brother and I were going to do that. So I had just graduated and now is the time where, you know, well, you said we could move and we did. So we, we were planning to go to Vancouver um, and I got this, this gig with Carson Cole and I convinced the management for Carson Cole to also take my brother, Kevin, and the bass player at the time, which wasn't my mom anymore. She actually left uh, a couple years to uh, prior to go take my my younger brothers and to uh, put them in a real school in Moose Jaw. So we, uh, my mom was replaced by a guy named Shane Hendrickson, who you probably know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Shane was the current guy. And so, so we had this core, me, Kevin, and Shane. And we all three of us went and played with Carson, you know, right, right from the family band. We just stepped right into that immediately. So is Kevin older or younger than you? Uh, he's older by uh, two years. Okay. So, so you move out in 89. So when I see you, I think it's about 91, 92. So you guys have been in, you had been in Vancouver. Now, were you already, now you guys had the Explorers, which is your original project. And you also had your financial band, the band that made you money was the Underground Outlaws. Exactly. Which, which was your country band because the country market was paying for your, your original habit. Right, because you could have a lot less overhead with a country band, right? You didn't need the big follow spot. You didn't need the big light show. You didn't need the sound man even, right? So we did sound, we had, everything was just the four of us. We played all these country clubs and all the money that we made doing that, uh, that we didn't spend on living expenses, obviously, we put into the Explorers, which was our prog rock original band. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And it's amazing because everybody from that band has gone on to great things. Shane is still a very successful bass player, you totally. know, with Leahy and Natalie Pastor and Aaron yep. Pochette. And yep. yeah. And, you know, I, I, I just, I, I, I just saw a thing on Facebook the other day and he got his original bass back. Somebody found his original. His, I know. That's his so original amazing. Japanese bass or something. Yeah. And, yeah. and and apparently he got his his old cowboy hat back too. Did you see that's, that? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's incredible. And then you know, and then Kevin, of course, and you, and then Mike Norman, who went on to great things. Like, what a band of superstars! Yeah, we uh, we had it. We thought we had everything, all our ducks in a row to you know to achieve the success that we were looking for. But uh, you know, it didn't happen. My brother moved back to Saskatchewan. Uh, and we got somebody to replace them and that was good, but it didn't, didn't have the same mojo and it didn't, it didn't last. And Mike then went on to do his own thing with, um, uh, Chris Aiken, who was the drummer that replaced my brother. Right. Um, and then it was just me and Shane and we're like, well, I guess we don't really have a band anymore. So the band kind of broke up and that's when I decided to go back to school for computer animation. Okay. And at the same time you're doing computer, computer animation, you start busking. Right. That's how I put myself through uh, animation school. Yeah. And, and so it was during your busking period, we actually came to my garage and played Thank God I'm a Country Boy. Yeah, right. I, That's yeah. Be and, and before that, I didn't really know that much fiddle. I, I actually learned to play fiddle on the streets of Vancouver in, this, in the sea bus terminal and, you know, SkyTrain. And, and, and that was one of the prerequisites of you joining Shania. So it's amazing how, right. how serendipitous, you know, it's like, a, well, 
that that's when I just that's when I stopped believing that we actually have any control in our lives <laughs> because <laughs> we, because we just talked about how the explorers we had everything lined up we had Mike Norman and Shane Hendrickson and my brother Kevin and we were this we were so focused and we were so hardworking we had Underground Outlaws and we released an album with Underground Outlaws and we released an album with the Explorers and we toured on both both bands together at the same time playing original music and you know we worked so hard there wasn't anybody harder working except for cease and desist by the way your band (laughs) (laughs) yeah right (laughs) and uh and it didn't happen for us right Mm -hmm. so um but then and then i you know i got jaded and a little bit um burnt out went back to school for animation did two two years of that got a great gig as an animator right out of college and then out of nowhere the shania twain gig comes right but if i hadn't done that street busking playing fiddle and cutting my teeth really you know on the streets of vancouver as a fiddler i wouldn't have been ready for the shania gig or and it was because of well actually it was because i knew one song with the underground outlaws as a as a fiddle player that i got referred as a fiddle player for the shania gig i played the orange blossom special and we always played at the end of the night when everybody was drunk so i didn't have to be that good because everybody just you know if you were sawing on a fiddle you know, they loved it. Right. Yeah. And, and it was a song where you sped up really fast and it just seemed like I was awesome, but I only knew that one song, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, um, cause I know you're going to ask me this anyway. How did you get the Shania gig? Yeah. It was the, um, the editor of country music news magazine, which was like the Georgia Strait magazine, which was a free magazine in the clubs that people could see what's going on in the city. Right. And the editor of that had seen me play, that Orange Blossom special, really fast, the only fiddle song that I knew. And she referred me to Mercury Records when they asked her who they would recommend as a fiddler, right? Wow. But, which is is amazing in itself, but if I hadn't actually learned more than one song, I definitely would not have been ready to actually tackle that gig. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. That is so incredible. I, mem- I remember going to see you guys as the Underground Outlaws one time. I think it was... I think it was a Port Moody Inn of all things. One mm. that's it's long since gone, burned down, whatever. Wow. But I remember, and I remember Shane Hendrickson doing Orange Blossom Special by himself as a bass solo. Oh no, no, pardon a- me, no Foggy Mountain Breakdown. That's it. That's Foggy it. Mountain. I couldn't believe it. Like I mean, he's doing a five string banjo song on his bass as a yeah, solo. All slapping. It was amazing. <laughs> that was know. one of the one of our big songs for with the Underground Outlaws. It was doing that instrumental and folk, you know, featuring the bass. Yeah, like oh my god! What, what? <laughs> so okay, so now, so you get the the gig with Shania, and I remember seeing you play. I went to the Junos. The Junos were in Vancouver. That must have yeah. been shortly after you got that gig. Was that before? Right. Cause you, yeah, because Shania hadn't toured yet. I think that was her first. Nope. That was her first launch. Like there was actually speculation that she was a, a product of the studio and that uh-huh. she actually couldn't sing, couldn't perform. She was right. just this beautiful girl that they put in front of a, a camera and uh, almost like Millie Vanilli, you know, she was so Lang's toy. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, because they didn't, she didn't tour on her first album because they didn't want to put her out with one album, which is like 40 minutes worth of music and do 90 minute shows where you have to do the other half of the night, you know, cover tunes, right? Right. So they waited until she had two albums worth of, you know, hits so that she could go out and just play arenas right from the get go. But she did do 
um, TV promo, you know, like the Juno Awards. And she played some festivals even before I was in the band. Uh, I think she did like a bus tour with Toby Keith where they were both on the bus at the same time. And then they had like a house band back them up or something like that. Okay. Um, so she did a little bit, but it wasn't like a full show. And, yeah. and that Juno Awards was actually in Vancouver. It was one of the first things I did with her, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the uh, rehearsals. And our our friend um, Jeff, Jeff Neal. Jeff Neal. Yeah, yeah Jeff Neal played acoustic on it. Yeah, because we we actually needed another guitar player at the time, and I recommended Jeff. Right. And and so he that was kind of his audition for the gig. Yeah, I know he he was he was really looking forward to possibly working with Mutt. That was his big thing. He said, you know, he was it, Shania was one thing, but I, he, his main focus was like I've got to work with Mutt. You right. know, so that that was his disappointment when that didn't come through. Right, right. But, but you know, he got to do the gig, and that was kind of cool. I remember being at the at the Junos that year, and it was it was nice to have it in Vancouver. And of course, to see you up there playing with Shania was kind of like oh, that's cool. You know, it was it was nice because uh, also one of the other gigs I did while I was um, going through school and busking was, and I, I actually got this gig from busking was playing at the the Vancouver Canucks hockey games as the fiddler. You know, uh, on the games, when they go to a TV commercial break, I'd come out, they put me up on the big jumbotron yeah. and I'd play like one minute fiddle tunes. Right. And and uh, so that was in the same arena that the Junos were held as well. So it was nice to go back and see all the staff of the arena and just say hi. And, and you know, they were so proud of me because they knew me as a street entertainer. Now here I am playing the Junos with Shania Twain. Yeah, well, literally, I mean, you went from playing on the street to playing Super Bowl. I did. You know, literally almost <laughs> overnight. Yeah, I've played every gig from the street to the Super Bowl. Yeah, like, well, wasn't it you, like, you joined Shania and you were on David Letterman or something very quickly after. That, that, was, that was my audition. That was my really? audition. Yeah, so they, um, you know, I was working at my animation job. I got the call on my answering machine. Hey, this is so-and-so from Mercury Records. And um, we had a, ref- we, uh, we represent an artist that needs a fiddle player a kind of a young energetic player and your name came up and you should give us a call. And they didn't say it was for Shania at the time. Right. Yeah. And so I, of course I knew Shania was on Mercury, but I didn't think it would be her. I thought it'd be like some, you know, new artists that they're developing and I would just go on the road and, you know, do the same things I was just came out of and was so burnt out from. Uh, so I actually didn't call back. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was, I don't just, want to play with some schmuck. Yeah, well, no, because I had this new career, right? And I was really digging it. I loved animation. I loved computers. I told you I was a bit of a tech geek. Yeah. And, um, and so I didn't call back, but they called back, luckily. And then at that point, they said, well, uh, you know, we were a little discreet about who it is, but it's Shania Twain, so you should really give us a call. So, uh, of course, that was a big deal for me. And I knew who Mutt was, and I knew who Shania was. And, and I got on the call immediately, even though it was like midnight in, in Toronto times. Because... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Unbelievable. Like, it's, it's amazing. And it's incredible that the girl from that magazine, which was basically just a periodical in, in Vancouver, yep. ended up being your liaison into this the gig, the gig of the decade, and totally. if not the century, you know what I mean? It, it changed my life. It changed Absolutely. my life. I, it's so funny because I sent her flowers. Her name is Cheryl Homan or mm-hmm. Homan, Homan. Uh, and I sent her flowers because it was such a big deal. Apparently, somebody else referred me as well, but I, to this day, I still don't know who that is. Okay, so back to it. So now you're on the road, and the Shania tour is like unbelievably huge because the world's been waiting to see this this girl. The hits are like, I mean, and how you know to know the how strong 
Mutt was. For one thing, she broke every Nashville rule. There, there was no Nashville involvement, for one thing, that right. I know of. Right. And to, to know that they were going to have another album of even more hits than the first one mm -hmm. to be able to launch a like they, they knew they had the one, two, three punch thing lined up long before any of this happened because yep. she had, she had just done, I think she had done an album on her own. I, I, was she still working out of Ontario when she did it? She was doing that. What was it called? That, that resort I played there. Deerhurst. Deerhurst. Yes. And she was in a house. She had a house gig in Deerhurst. Yes. And I, I, I got the feeling she must have released that album and she might have been using Deerhurst to maybe use her money to go back and forth to Nashville or something. Because I think she cut an album in Nashville. She did. Uh, she did. And before Mutt, I forget. Yeah. I think it was just self-titled Shania Twain. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, studio guys from Nashville, all Nashville writers. Uh, I think she had her hand in writing one or two songs, but mostly Nashville writers. Okay. Um, that album came out, and consequently, that's when Mutt saw her only video from that, which was What Made You Say That, mm -hmm. which was filmed in LA, I think. Um, uh, and then she was about to lose her, her record deal, to be honest. Um, but when Mutt saw that video, he, he got his management to get in touch with her. They got on the phone, started this... At first, it was like this, you know, professional sort of relationship where she'd be like, yeah, I've got all these songs I'm writing and she'd sing them for him over the phone. And he'd be like, oh, th those are so great. It would be great if you went to this. You know, they started kind of writing songs over the phone, starting this relationship and, of course, falling in love at the same time. Hmm. And at, at a certain point of, of doing this, you know, it, much like I'd love to produce your next record. And, and she was all about that, of course. Um, but she didn't know how her record label in Nashville would take it because he's, of course, ACDC Mutt, Def Leppard Mutt, and she's in Nashville, right? right. Um, so she sheepish, sheepishly told her label executive, Luke Lewis, um, you know what? I've met this guy. His name's Mutt Lang, and I want him to produce my next record. She didn't know she was about to lose her deal. And it was the game changer for her because Luke, of course, he's a, you know, he's a kind of a rocker from the old days. He was all about it, of course. And uh, that sort of perpetuated her career into the next phase, which was not losing her deal and becoming super successful with this collaboration with this. this so giant. she was with Mercury even on her first deal. I believe so. Yeah. So she, oh, wow. Boy, did that ever, did they ever win out with that one? Yeah. Holy smokes. Cause she, you know, they yeah. put her into the Nashville machine cause that's what everybody does. Right. You know? Exactly. And that's what they did with her. And, uh, and she moved, you know, to Nashville and she was kind of the sole breadwinner for her whole family because her parents died. Right. So it's quite an amazing story. And, um, but it all worked out. Yeah. Timmins, Ontario girl. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a really good friend that lives in Timmins actually. Are you from Sault Ste. Marie? Is that why you had a house gig at a young age? I, yeah, well, I was in high school. What happened was I was about 14 years old and my brother was getting ready to go on the road. He's much older than me, about eight, nine years older than me. And he was getting a band together to go on the road. And they had a house cake in this uh, nightclub called Beavers. Insert your own joke here. And so uh, they had this. And so <laughs> they needed a guitar player 
to get the band together to go on the road, but they hadn't found anybody yet, but they wanted to play and make money. So he said, well, just get my kid brother to play. So I was making 150 bucks a week doing this gig six nights a week and going to high school. Um, at the end of, uh, now all of a sudden they get into guitar player, but for a few weeks I'd been making this money and I'm kind of used to it. So I, I went to an alternative nightclub and said, hey, I've got a great band. And I put a band together with Michael Sicoli and Tim, my friend Tim Hewitt. And we started playing this nightclub. And that's how I ended up getting a house gig at this other nightclub because I, I, I knew what people wanted. And, you know, we just basically I think I'm playing the same songs now. <laughs> I've never got to change my set list in 40 years. Amazing. No, yeah. we, we, uh, for anybody that doesn't know the listeners, you know, the, the awe that, that my band had for your band you know, it went both ways for sure. And, and, and we, we truly looked up to you guys. You guys were such, you know, it's one thing to be great players, but you guys were great players and amazing vocalists, like every single one of you. Uh, and it doesn't happen now these days, you know, the, the caliber of that kind of talent being in one, one act to, to, you know, any one of you, uh, you know, could have led your own thing and, and uh, that's yeah. very, very kind of you. I, I, I Mark, Mark LaFrance, uh, we're, we're doing some writing right now. Actually, we're releasing a song on, on, under his name. It's just happened over the past couple of days. Oh, awesome. But, but he, uh, I've been working with Mark for over 35 years now. That's amazing. And it was just on a, it was a phone call. Uh, wow. he, he didn't even want to play in a, in a cover band. Uh, what happened was uh, Bernie Aubin had quit my, my band with Jeff and myself, Paradox. Okay. Yep. And, and they, they wanted to have Paradox closed down the Outlaws uh, Cabaret in Vancouver. Oh. And so we needed a drummer and they, they only wanted us to play two sets. They had one band. They wanted us to close the night every night. And so I, I phoned up Mark. I think it was for two nights, Friday, Saturday. And I, I phoned up Mark because he'd been recommended. I'd been hearing about Mark for years. And um, he said, yeah, okay. You know, I, I don't really want to play in a cover band, but yeah, okay. And yeah, it sounds like fun. And we've been together ever since. <laughs> That's know, just, just amazing. It's just the weirdest thing. We're like best friends. All, like, we just, it's just, amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Is C- cease and desist still, still going? Well, as much as it can be, of course, yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. It, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Mark Bent and I, we've been together, that band's been together 89, so it's getting 32 years. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that band formed in 89. Incredible. Right around the time you moved to Vancouver, I guess. Yeah, that would yeah. be exactly when, yeah. Yeah, crazy, crazy, so cool. crazy. Um, so, okay. So now let's get back to this. I, I, I'm still in awe of all the things that have happened to you. And, and, but what's really weird about it is that it, the way everything came together for you also came together for Shania because all the things that happened with you and Kevin and, uh, you know, all the th- things in your career and your family. And, and then, and the same thing happened with Shania where it's like this mutt thing. And if it wasn't for her, was it, would you say it was a record head or her, who was the guy you mentioned just before? Yeah, the record label executive, Luke Lewis. Yeah. He, was the, he was the head of Mercury Nas- Nashville. And, and yet he was a rocker. Yeah, he was, a, you know, an old guy, uh, you know, from rocker from the 70s, 60s, whatever. And Because, uh, because normally the Nashville machine is the Nashville machine. You don't, you don't venture outside of that. Right. There was very few people that did that. The, um, the uh, was it the Dwight Yoakam is the only other one I could think of. Right. Yeah, totally. So uh, anyway, so Shania goes on. Now, when did you start working with Kelly Clarkson? Was that a direct? Ah. So, yeah. So I did two tours with Shania. 
Uh, last one was in 2004. Let, let, oh, let me interject for one second, please. Yeah. What, what did you do in between tours with Shania? Okay, so after the first tour was when I moved to L.A. and, and started working with Mike Shepley in the studio of L.A., okay? Yeah. And that was a perfect... Uh, the last gig I, I did with him was we mixed the Shania Up record. And to do that, we both flew to Switzerland to Mutt's studio, and we worked for three months every day mixing Shania's Up record, which had 19 songs on it, which yeah. is, if that isn't enough to mix, um, there were two different versions, a pop version and a country version that we had to do separate mixes for. Right. So 38 songs, three months. We were working pretty much every single day. Uh, a lot of hard work. And then they did a third version too, which was the world version, but we didn't mix that. They hired these Indian dudes from London to do this world. It was really, really cool, actually. So... Not only are you in her band, you're also mixing her albums. Right. Holy smokes. Like you're, you're in there like deep. Well, I tried to make myself valuable, you know? Yeah. Well, the more things you can do and the more value you can show and the more trust you can, that the artist can have in you that, you know, the, the more work you'll have. Well, what about, what about your computer skills with animation? Were you able to use that too? Uh, well, actually, that's funny uh, because I did, but not, not too much. Uh, I made I made one of the tour laminates for the, one of the first tours. Okay. Uh, you know, that everybody wore. I just made that up in a 3D program. It was a, a mic stand on, on a stage with a spotlight and, and a, a maple leaf because that was kind of her, her company logo or something at the time. Wow. So, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I haven't done much with the animation since. Of course, I use the graphic skills whenever I can and social media whenever I'm doing stuff for my band Took or whatever, what have you, but... What uh, program were you using back then? Do you, do you mind asking? It was, yeah. So it was called Soft Image, which is what they did the first Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park in. Okay. And then also Alias Wavefront, which turned into Maya. Oh, okay. It, it's currently Maya. Yeah, I've heard of Maya. Yeah. So that was the precursor to Maya. So it was Soft Image and Maya were the, the two big packages that, were, that you needed a real sweet computer to run, run them on. And so you had this great gig that yeah. you'd landed f with doing animation and yeah. you're, tur you're turning down this phone call because you're going, I don't want to do this. I got a great gig with animation. Why would I want to go play fiddle and starve yep. again? Yep. Essentially. Exactly. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was, I was done with playing the bars. I wanted to think about my future. I didn't want to work check to check. I wanted to have benefits, um, you know, and that's what I had. I was working at mainframe, which you may or may not know in Vancouver. Yes, they, of they had they had a show called Reboot, which was yes. like an animated show, and then they had Beast Wars Transformers, which was based on the Transformer toys, mm -hmm. uh, but they were like animals when they weren't in their machine mode, uh, and so and that was syndicated all around the world. So it was, it was so much fun, you know. Am I me I, asking? Yep, you you, were, you made pretty decent money busking. Um, I made as much money busking as I did playing in the bars. Do you remember the most you ever made in one busking session? Probably 200 bucks. Okay. Yeah. And that, so that's over the course of how many hours? Two hours, three hours. Okay. I, so I, I never really went home until I made at least a hundred bucks. Right. Okay. And it was usually like two to four hours a day. Well, you're talking about cease and desist being a heartbreaking band. I remember we used to play in nightclubs 
you know, and finish playing at two o'clock, go home, go to sleep, wake up, go up to Whistler and set up in monks at the bottom of Blackhome Mountain in, in this room that was not designed to have live music whatsoever. We're, we're up against the windows. You know, Mark's, Mark used two drums. Uh, he had a floor tom, a kick drum, a hat, and, and we'd tear the house down. But the thing is, they paid us next to nothing. They would feed us mm. and give us like a couple hundred bucks each, I think. But okay. the money we made in tips, like we'd mm. get $1,000 in tips a day sometimes. Awesome. You know, so that, that, and then we'd finish there, tear down and drive to Vancouver to play that night. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Matter of fact, one time, I think we did three gigs. We got up really early. We had to be up there at five o'clock in the morning because we would play at the bottom of Whistler Mountain, playing to the skiers as they're getting on the lifts for first tracks. Wow. Then we would tear down there at 11 o'clock, go over to Monks, play 2.30 to 5.30 for Apre, then go to Vancouver and play that night. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there you go. Yeah. And, that, and a lot of bands did that, but but not nearly as. I mean that that that's working really hard. Oh, but, it's insane! It's insane! Yeah. I I can't believe we didn't kill ourselves on that highway. You know, I mean, oh yeah, good lord, because sure. yeah. that's all on snow on snow packed terrible highways. That was before the uh, the Olympics. You yeah. know, before yeah. they improved those highways. Yeah, anyway, totally. getting back. So Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. So you asked me what I did between the tours. So the first tour. Uh, so app. At the end of mixing um, that Shania album, the Up album, then that meant that she had to go back and do promo for that. So that's when my career with Mike ended and I went right from the studio back onto the stage and did promo with her. And then we did our second tour. And then that was kind of it because then it all went down with... Um, with Mutt where they broke up, right? So right. then she didn't do a record for 10 or 12 years. I can't remember. So, and I was unemployed, right? My gig with Mike was over. He had replaced me. I was back in LA. I had a huge house payments, you know, because I was living the lifestyle that I had this gig forever. <laughs> but of course the gigs stop, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was getting really stressed out and, and, I didn't have any contacts except the Shania people and she wasn't doing anything. Uh, and here I was in LA and in the strange city that, you know, with no gig. So um, I started to get desperate. I put my feelers out there, didn't get any work as a musician. Um, and so I started to send out resumes to app companies and line six was one of the companies that I sent my resume to and a video game company. Cause I thought maybe I'll get back into animation or whatever. And, um, and the, the resume that I gave to Line 6, they, um, they said there wasn't a position for me um, and that I wasn't qualified for the positions that they had. Um, I said, okay, fine, thank you. But then they called uh, a couple weeks later and said that Kelly Clarkson's guitar player at the time was in Line 6 um, and he had told them that Kelly wants to add two violinists on the next tour and because and, and it was a canadian guy that worked at line six that that actually remembered me we had a bit of a rapport because he's like oh i'm from vancouver too oh that's so cool yeah um and he told kelly clarkson guitar player that shania twain's fiddler had just been in looking for work and that you should call him so i got a call from the music director not too long later and um that's kind of where my Kelly gig started. I did my first tour with her. I played five songs as a violinist, you know. Now, 
up to this point, I was a fiddler, right? And not a very good fiddler. I kind of, <laughs> you know, I could saw and all that, but I wasn't a violinist. So I get to the Kelly gig and they hand me this sheet music. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> and I nearly crap my pants. Um, yeah. I, I, so, you know, I could read music because my first, my first instrument was piano and it, I played classical piano. So I did kind of, I knew how to read, but I wasn't quick at it. But anyway, I, somehow I made it through the rehearsals and the audition and I went on tour. I played five songs during the, during the night and the rest of the night, I just stood on the wings of the stage and watched the show. Right. And right near the end of that tour, that same guitar player that referred me got fired uh, one show before the end of the tour. And the music director that hired me came to me and said, Hey, Corey, do you think you can play the last show on guitar? <laughs> and because I'd already been standing watching the show from the side of the stage, you know, I knew the arrangements. I knew the so how the songs went, right. but you know, I didn't know the chords and all that, but he's, and, and the last show was Vancouver. So oh, wow. I, I thought I'd get to visit with my friends and high five everybody. And here I was shedding in the, in the dressing room of the, of the um, theater, yeah. learning the, learning play one show on guitar and I totally did it. And wow. after that, that kind of solidified my role in the band. Um, I went from only violinist to utility guy, then to just guitar. And, you know, I played keys and stuff too. And then I played some violin with her later on, but that's kind of how my whole Kelly initiation went. It's not incredible. That's well. And now, but Shania did another tour after that, did she not? She did. So, well, it wasn't a tour. It was a residency in, in Vegas. Oh, Vegas. Right, right. Of course. Yes. Right. So, um, yeah, I did 12, 13 years with Kelly. And then Shania started to come back on the scene. And now she's going to be playing Vegas. And now I'm in Kelly's band, which I really liked. But Shania is back. And, you know, uh, of course, I have a bit of seniority with Shania. So... She hired me on as band leader at the time. Um, I kind of juggled both bands, but at a certain point it got too much and I had to sort of like go one way or the other. And I ended up, you know, going with Shania because, because I was promoted to music director and, and, um, and that's what we did. We did a, a, a residency in, in Vegas, which turned into another tour, which turned into another tour. And now there's another residency in Vegas that we had started and then COVID hit. Boom. Yeah. And here we are talking to each other when I should be on stage in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Hey, it's funny. You, you talk about yeah. putting the sheet music put up in front of you uh, as a violinist. Um, Randy was telling me a story. Randy Backman was telling me a story years ago when they, when the guess who landed their gig on CBC with the old CBC show back in the late sixties called let's go music hop. Oh, yeah. And the guess who had had some success was shaken all over. But this was sort of before they had these eyes and in inter international fame with American Woman. So they, they basically they were asked to do this show on CBC and they said, well, you can read music. Right. And of course, they could, oh, of course, we can. Of course, we can. Well, they can't. But, <laughs> but Randy was able to find out that he um, that, that there was a um, the musical director of the show who did the, um, 
the musical arrangements, Randy was able to talk to him and ask him what songs they were going to be doing several days before. So he would find out what songs they were doing and they would learn them. So then they would come in and they'd put the sheet music in front of the band. The band would play them verbatim. And they think they're reading, these guys reading chops are through the roof. Meanwhile, they weren't reading anything. They could have been upside down. They were just playing from what they learned off the records. You know, that's amazing. And I've been there and done that. <laughs> uh, to- no, totally. And, and, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to get the job done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you never, never say no. That's uh, right. Scott, Scott wants to ask you a question. Okay. Yeah, Corey. So one of the things I've been following for quite a while is uh, I believe one of your bandmates, um, Elijah Wood, the drummer, um, has some really neat uh, videos on YouTube of over the shoulder playing in the shows. And some of them are like way up in the air and all that. Is that the residency shows? Uh, those are from, some of them are from the residency and some are from our, our previous tour. Right, right. I mean, they're, yeah. for, for those of, uh, of, our, of our, our listeners, our audience and that, ever get a chance to see them, again, her name is Elijah Wood. Just their fantastic views of your show from the very top of the stage. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's an exciting perspective to see you guys playing that way. Yeah, on a, on a, um, on that particular tour. So we had all these cubes. There were six of them, I believe, uh, or five of them. And they would just move all over and get hoisted right up into the rafters of the arena. And, and Elijah, who we call Frodes, because Elijah Wood, of course, is an actor as well, right? Who right. played Frodo right, on right. Lord of the Rings. So we call Elijah Frodes. Uh, we would all get hoisted, hoisted up. You know, we'd stand on these cubes and we get hoisted up. And I even have a, on my Instagram, if you check it out, I, ha- I, I wore a GoPro head um, camera. And just to see how high I was up on top of, you know, basically in the rafters, looking down at the people and what kind of view that was and how scary it was too. Like our other guitar player, Josh Gooch, wouldn't do it because uh, he was scared of heights. But Elijah would be always up there up in the rafters and play like half the show up there. Um, even, even um, just kind of waiting for certain parts of the show, just sitting up there alone. And she's, and she's a quite a kick-ass drummer too. She's very animated when she's playing. Really great. Yep. Now you yep. guys are obviously strapped in for that. There has to be safety precautions. No, exactly. There were, we all, we all had these tethers. It was up to us to um, hook them up. And, and sometimes you would forget but no. usually, usually the crew guys were watching and they'd be like, they'd have somebody in her ear saying, Corey, uh, tether up or whatever. And so they would help out a lot. But, um, and, and, you know, when you're that high, you tend to not forget to, to do that. But sometimes they weren't that high and you would, you would forget it at those times. Yeah. And uh, we certainly, uh, we saw a terrible, terrible accident at the first residency in uh, Vegas from someone falling into a, uh, an elevator shaft that, was, that would bring stuff up onto the stage, right? Oh my. And it was like, it was like a 20, 20 or 30 foot drop. And one of the crew guys fell into that on, you know, he, he walked right into it. It was a dark stage and I don't think he's been, been the same since. So we took, you know, after, after that kind of happened, we, we really took safety and security very seriously. Can we talk about your, uh, your guitarist? Mm-hmm. You got, you don't only have a guitar endorsement. You have your own guitar. I do. I have a signature guitar. Yeah. Can I see it? Sure. Ah, uh, uh, beautiful. Now, is is it sort of like an ES three thirty five sort of thing with a block down the center? 
Yeah, it's sort of a cross between a Les Paul and a 335. There, it's hollow, and there's an F hole here. Right. Um, but it's sort of set up like it feels more like a Les Paul. Uh, there are some modifications that make it better than a Les Paul, in my opinion, like the the shaving of the back of the neck, so you can get up higher right. on the neck. Right. Um, I also uh, have a uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, I don't know if you can see this. Oh yes. I've got the uh, Rebel Alliance logo at the 12th fret. Okay. <laughs> so what's what what are all the controls on it? What are the, what? yeah? So um, I wanted it to kind of set up more like a, a Strat guitar. Right. So the volume control is here. It's a one volume thing as opposed to two, which a Les Paul would have. Right. Uh, then you you know you can do volume swells if you wanted to. Uh, you don't have to worry about two. I find that Les Pauls because there is two volumes. It always messed me up because you know one was for the front pickup one was for the back pickup and if you're doing a solo and you forgot that you turned the front pickup down and then you go change to the front pickup it would be off right and then be like ah yeah. oh, crap so um i just wanted one for everything and then i have this little kill switch right here which is kind of cool to get those intermittent sort of staccato things yes uh, okay. and then the, these other two things are just uh tones like they would be on a on a strat and uh, and a bigsby whammy bar do you remember um, when Gibson came up with those Les Paul Firebrand series? They were like they, they were like the natural wood, um, like not, not even a finish. They looked like mahogany, and okay. they were like a, a Les Paul shape. Anyway, I had one, and I cool. took I took the the four knobs off for that very reason. The two volumes drove me crazy, yeah. and I put basically one tra one volume, one tone for the whole guitar, just so it'd be more like a Strat. I want to I want to get into Tuke a bit. Yeah, let's do it. I, I love the Tuke project. And the thing is, okay, for all these people that don't live in Canada, a, a Tuke is what you call a knitted cap. Yes. Essentially. Yeah, a winter hat. That's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a wool, it's a wool winter hat, but we call them a toque. Yeah. That's it. It can have a pom-pom or it doesn't have to. You know, whatever <laughs> whatever you'd wear outside in the wintertime, that's that's a toque. So all you guys, Brett Fitz and you and, uh, oh gosh, Todd, um, uh, like who's all in that band? Like the, 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 main, the main guys. Todd Kearns, of course. Yeah. He's the lead singer and he fronted uh, Age of Electric right. in Canada, which was, you know, success in the 90s. Uh, and he's now bass player, you know, uh, with Slash. Okay. Um, and uh, Brent Fitz, who also plays with Slash. Right. Uh, he plays drums and slash, but he plays bass and toque because he wanted to be out front. Yeah. Um, and he's also played with Gene Simmons. I mean, he's played with Alice Cooper. Uh, he has quite a pedigree, actually. He played with um, Econoline Crush, which is a Canadian band as well. Was he in Econoline Crush? I didn't know that. I think he did like one or two tours. Wow. Uh, well, he also played with Street Art for a bit, I think. Uh, yes, he plays Street Art as well. Yeah. He plays, plays with uh, the, guess, the current lineup of the Guess Who every now and then as well. Right. Um, and uh, and then Shane Gallus, who is from Innisfil, Alberta, and he uh, played with Ingve Malmsteen. He played with um, Uli oh Roth. He played with uh, Michael Schenker. And wow. then his 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 actually big gig. I mean, those are big gigs. But uh, the the one that he made the most money with and played the biggest shows is a band that no one in North America has, has heard of. It called Bees because they're a Japanese band. It's, it's uh -huh. B, B apostrophe Z. And um, they are like, they're like the freaking Bon Jovi of Japan. Like they've released 
30 albums maybe i don't know like lots every wow. year it's like clockwork and uh and they've sold like 90 million records so they're like super super big time anybody and they're like a household name in japan but of course and, and in, in a lot of parts of asia but most in north america nobody really knows them because it's all japanese right it's japanese kind of prog sort of prog rock i suppose Wow, that's interesting. But he's play, you know, it's the kind of kind of shows where the band shows up in Tokyo and plays like four nights in a row at the Tokyo Dome for like eighty thousand people a night. That's how big the shows were. Oh my god! So he did that for you know probably at least a decade, um, and yeah, he lives in LA here with me, and we actually uh, uh, became friends at a hockey rink. <laughs> we had a mutual friend. I was looking for a place to play hockey when I moved down to LA and, and our mutual friend, uh, when I asked him, I said, you know, where can I go? He says, I don't really know, but Hey, there's a guy that lives in your area named Shane Gallus and he's playing hockey. So, uh, I called him up and we met at a rink in a dressing room and became fast friends ever since. And now he's the, he's the drummer in two. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. He, so, so I, I, I played with Brett, um, uh, Brent Fitz, uh, with, uh, Slosh. We did a, we did a gig together somewhere with some outdoor thing, but, and, and of course, Brent knows Mark LaFrance very well and all that stuff. This Winnipeg right. connection and all that. Um, but yeah, he's, he's another, he's another fascinating character. We, we hooked up, we were doing a gig down in Vegas and he came out at, uh, to see us a few nights and we hung out in the casinos and stuff, just, you know, hanging out, chit chatting and stuff and uh -huh. talking shop. And uh, of all things, he was friends with Leon Spinks, the boxer. So Leon Spinks was hanging out with us too. <laughs> Brent, Brent knows everyone. Yeah. Th that's his gig. They call him the mayor of Winnipeg because that's where he's from and he knows everybody there and he's always guesting on their radio shows and, uh, you know, he knows the Winnipeg Jets owner and they come to our shows when we're, you know, it's, it's like he knows everybody. That's his thing. But I love the whole concept of the Took thing. It's basically because you guys are covering Canadian songs that most American or Americans or the rest of the world haven't heard outside of Canada. Yeah. Like great songs that never broke the border. Every time we got together, we would um, talk about, because, you know, when you're in, in living in the States, you don't hear the same CanCon. You don't hear those old songs. Uh, and so we were, you know, we were at dinner one day and we were talking about old Canadian rock tunes and all those songs, all those concerts that we grew up seeing and all the songs we cut our teeth on as little kids and then all the lines we stood in waiting for Brian Adams autograph or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we just decided, you know, uh, after playing uh, a charity event in Winnipeg for like breast cancer, uh, where we played nothing but Canadian tunes, which was so fun for us because... Like I said, they're just all our, that's, that's the reason we got into music in the first place was because of these bands and right. these songs. Right. And, and, you know, we played everything note for note. We learned all the parts. We had backing tracks, you know, to all the keyboard parts because we didn't have a keyboard player. We still don't. And, uh, and then we decided one day we'll just, why don't we record, you know, a record of some of these tunes? Mm. And one record turned into two records. And now we're working on a third record, which is more of, our, of an original project now. What are some of the songs that you uh, play? Some of the Canadian stuff. Um, you know, all we we focus mostly mostly on the '70s and '80s sort of classic rock. So, uh, Streetheart, Aldo Nova, April Wine, uh, Lover Boy, Harlequin. Um, you know, we do Rush, of course. We have to do oh, a wow. Rush song. Wow. Uh, 
uh, Brian Adams tune, but but the Brian Adams tune we we chose was like from his first album, like the deep cuts from right. from uh, from his the beginning of of his career. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Orphan, a band called Orphan from Winnipeg. Right. So a lot of these songs, even Canadians don't know, and certainly not not the rest of the world. So to the rest of the world, we we kind of brought back these songs. We played them note for note. We gave them a kind of a fresh coat of paint with 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 bigger mixes and that sort of thing. And we showed the world because, of course, we all have these international fans playing with Slash, playing with Shania, playing with Japanese band. And um, and we show to, to them they're all like original tunes, but to us they're our favorite childhood tunes, right? Um, it's the best yeah. of both worlds. Totally. Yeah, and you're and you're paying homage to the people that brought you to the dance type of thing, and yeah. uh, and also it's it's great for these artists to have somebody playing their songs. You know, if anything happens with these songs, I'm, it, you never know because a mm-hmm. a Took version of their song could hit very big yeah. time at, at, you know, at the very least in the movie soundtrack. Yeah. We just released a uh, sheriff's when I'm with you uh, around Christmas time. Wow. And we, we managed to shoot a video, which was great for it. So, and it's, it, uh, it's got a lot of attention actually because sheriff never actually ever did a video because when it hit big time in the States, uh, they had already broken up, which is an amazing story in itself. I know. So they, they, they had their album. It was great. And then they broke up and the guy started the band Frozen Ghost. Right. And he was in the middle of touring his Frozen Ghost album when some DJ in the States started playing the Sheriff song. Which one was that? When I'm With You. Was it, it's that one? Yeah, it was that. Okay. That's fine. And, and it, it went number one. And the band had broken up for like five or six years. Yep. And so now he's making, and he, he was smart enough to buy all the masters of the songs when the band broke up. So he made all the money. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of contention around that. And, uh, um, but you know, Arnold was kind of was the main songwriter, I think in the band. Uh, he saved all the public. I don't, I don't actually know all the, the, you know, what went down, but I know that there's some hard feelings even still, but you know, uh, the other two guys in the band, the guitar player and singer, Freddie Kirchie, um, he was just on Took Talk, which is our podcast that we we do. Um, he he started Alias, which was a it was an American success, okay. right? With with two guys from Hearts, the original Heart Band, right? Okay. And they had that that song, uh, "I Need You Now," more than words can say. I need but in the eighties, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was kind of the the fu to uh the when i'm with you uh <laughs> the, right. the guy who wrote that song they're gonna write their own ballad and it was a big hit too so well that's well, a good ballad. they, they all they all won but it was just kind of a shame that because one of my favorite bands was actually sheriff and i loved that first record I, and um and but they broke up you know when when they actually really achieved some pretty cool success yeah before. Yeah, they, they were a great band. Yeah. It's really sad because I, I actually liked them before they broke up. And then then all of a sudden, because I had the album long before the, the single was pulled out, off it from whatever DJ in the States pulled it off. Yeah. It's amazing how those things, I don't, I don't know if those things can still happen anymore. The music business has just no. changed so much. You know, everything's sort of corporate. It, it, one, one person sort of dictates what every station is going to play. Uh, John, our producer, is a has a background in radio, and it's uh, up right up until this this past summer. Uh, so he knows the ins and outs of it, and it's just it's not the same as it used to be, you know. And no. It used to be, you know, I, um, a good case in point. Once again, bringing back uh, uh, Randy Backman, 
story, they had these eyes and the record company in, in RCA said, you've got to come up with another ballad. They said, we don't want to be a ballad band. We want to be a rock band. We're, we're a rock band. You know, these eyes just happen to be the best song on our album. And it became a huge hit. So they write laughing, which is, basically stealing the lick from ah. the beginning of uh, the Bee Gees song. Bring, oh, bing. yeah, that's but right. The Bee Gees song is minor. They made it major. And then they did the, the, the descending line up, just like uh, Crying by Roy Orbison. Right. You know? And so rather than crying, let's call it laughing. Right? <laughs> so that's, that's where that came from. But while the song starts getting airplay and it starts dying off, it, did, it didn't make it to the million mark. But some DJ flipped it over on the other side was undone. And now, so now they had a double-sided single. Ah, so, the, okay. so, and that's, that's, that was the magic. That's what DJs used to be able to do in the, in the music that's business true. for artists. You know, that's they true. had, they had so much power. They totally did. They could have their own programming and now there's one programmer for, you know, 20 stations. Yeah. It's, it's not the same. It's the wild west now, even with, you know, the, the lack of physical copies of music. Mm-hmm. And the accessibility to it, it's, you know, obviously no one's getting rich on it anymore. You do it because you love it, you know. You're, you're us, but getting back to your signature guitar, I wanted to ask, do you mm. know what they retail for? Uh, I think it said on their website, it's twelve ninety five US. Well, that's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad at all. So, and, uh, tell, and him, tell him Corey sent you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be dumb to not bring up, now I don't think you're, active with it anymore but i remember talking to you years ago um because you became a raw food advocate are you still that way um i would say that i i still think it's the best way to eat but i don't do it myself anymore because it takes an awful lot of time well that preparation well that was your thing because you had a site called raw can roll raw can roll kitchen (laughs) <laughs> Rock and roll kitchen and yeah. where you would show people how they could do raw food while they were on the road touring. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. never been healthier than when I was a raw foodist. I think my wife would say the same thing. Um, but you know, you miss when it's cold outside, you don't want to be eating something that's cold, you know? Yeah. Even, yeah. even though it is, like I said, I think it's the best way to eat and it makes sense because, you know, we're the only species on the planet that has to cook their food. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And, and of course, the weirdest thing about it, too, is that, you know, when they talk about vegetarian diets and stuff, but all the, the, you've always been a vegetarian? Uh, I, I, would, I went vegetarian in 89, actually around the same time that I came to Vancouver. And, and Mike, I've been, Mike Norman was, uh, Shane is too, isn't he? Shane's a vegan now, and I'm, I've been vegan for 15 years. Okay. And Mike Norman was a vegetarian? Yeah. Yeah, we all kind of did it together. My, my brother sort of was the one uh, devil's advocate guy who was you know, always going the other way. <laughs> yeah. Who's the guy that would, yeah. Uh, um, because uh, I was going to say with, with, you know, Brian Armstrong, we'd brought him up earlier. Yes. He's uh, vegan, he, right? Well, his, his wife has started more of a, a raw food diet with them because Good. Brian, of course, is a very successful life insurance man. And he said, he you know, he said, I just got sick of writing out policies for guys dying that were younger than me. He said it was just scaring the hell out of me. He Amazing. said, so I wanted to change my diet. He said, and Brian's always been healthy anyway. You know, he's, he's always worked out and he's always looked good and all that stuff. But he, he yeah, they, 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 she, I remember he was telling me about it. He says, it'd be pretty hard for you to do. He, he was telling me a few years back, he says, you need somebody that can prepare this stuff. Right. It, a lot of times it takes all day just to prepare dinner. If know? I had my own chef, I would definitely lean more towards raw for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I but, did the wrong you know, thing. 
myself for about six months. Oh my God, it's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work. Something on Friday, you got to start planning on Sunday. And you, you know, you plant your sprouts and you get things going and then you harvest them and you do the dehydrator and then the, like, oh yeah, I did the whole deal, dude. <laughs> dude, that's amazing. And But you felt good, right? I felt amazing. I had more energy than I've ever, ever had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, without a doubt, it's the best way. But, you know, in, in the beginning, I went vegetarian for health reasons. And then I went uh, vegan, you know, and still for health reasons. But, but it's, it's turned more into veganism for animals first now. Right. And, uh, you know, because you can be a, a, a pretty, you can have bad health as a vegan as well. Um, you know, you can eat a lot. You could eat Oreos all day and still be vegan. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm going to hell with my diet then. Uh-oh. Well, we might have oh, yeah. to convert you. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. bringing it back to 1989, yep. you said you went uh, vegetarian, I guess, at that point, not vegan. Vegan was right. relatively unheard of in those days. But yep. when you, you did uh, vegetarian, you said it was for health reasons. What, 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 just because you wanted to change your health or was there actually a reason? No, I didn't have a problem with my health. I just wanted to keep optimal health. My dad was a bit of a health food junkie and... I guess he probably put it in my brain a little bit, but I remember him saying at one point, you know, they analyzed uh, gravy from beef and they found the properties to be the same as urine. I don't know if that's true or not, but that really stuck in my head as a little kid. <laughs> it would. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, ew, gross. I don't want to eat, you know, gravy that's got urine in it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I met my wife at that time. And we talked about that kind of stuff and we decided, you know, let's try this together. And there was no internet back in those days. So it was just, it was all an experiment, really. There was one book, I think, The Diet, Diet for New America, which is um, John Robbins, who was the son of Baskin Robbins, the dude that owned Baskin Robbins. Okay. Uh, which was quite ironic for him, this guy to be vegan because mm-hmm. his dad had this empire of dairy, right? Of course, yeah. So he totally, you know, balked at that moved to Vancouver Island and he I think he started a kind of a sustainable sort of vegan lifestyle in Vancouver Island but um, so that that's why we went we went vegetarian at that time and it was an experiment we actually experimented with veganism a couple years into it went back onto eggs I think and then we went on to fish and then I went back to only dairy and and plants and then 15 years ago I went raw and, you know, kind of kept the whole vegan thing going from that point. You met your wife in 89? Yeah. In Vancouver? Yes. She said, and ironically, is- from Moose Jaw, where I grew up, but we didn't know, we didn't, we knew of each other and had uh, a couple of things that happened between where we met in Moose Jaw, but we didn't really connect until we were in Vancouver. Interesting. Yeah. Now, what, 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 I've never met your wife. Uh, so when did you get married? Uh, 92. Oh, so right around shortly after I met you or around yeah, the time. Yeah. She was so out in Vancouver. Yeah. And so what did she do? Um, at the and time she, she was, what does she continue to do for that? She, matter? Right, right now she's a psychotherapist. Okay. Um, at the time she was in university in, in, uh, Regina. Okay. And, uh, she was on a semester break in the summer. She moved with a friend to, um, Vancouver Long story short, she called me. I had just broken up with my girlfriend. We went to a movie, and then I went on the road. Wait, wait, hold it. She called you. So how did she know about you? Um, yeah, that's a good question. How she found? I think she found my number in the phone book. Um, just, but just random. She, she knew L- I was L- in a L- band. L- guy from Moose Jaw. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> no, because there is a bit of a backstory because she um, she knew about my band. She her friend would always come to see the family band and she okay. would come to see us. So I had talked to her in the clubs. Okay. And at one point I, I got a ride with her from Regina back to Moose Jaw with her friend. Um, and so she was kind of like keeping tabs on me. And she, she was in at the West Edmonton mall on a holiday one time and noticed my band's picture on one of the clubs at the mall coming next week. So she left a little note for me at this club with the bartender saying, hey, when these guys come, give this note and just said, hey, it's Jody. Uh, just saying hi. I was here. I saw your picture. So oh. that's, you know, it's kind of a bit of a backstory. Okay. When she got to Vancouver, she called. We talked for a long time. I said, hey, let's go to a movie. We went to a movie. And then I had to go on the road. And her friend um, got a nannying gig. So they were supposed to live together. Now she didn't have a place to stay. So I said, why don't you stay at my apartment? I'm going on the road for six weeks until you get your feet underneath you. You can just stay here. Right. So she did. And when I got back from the road, she was gone. She had already... So, um, got a new apartment and uh, but but our romance sort of blossomed from that point she ended up sticking around she didn't go back to Regina for her college but she finished it later and here we are like 28 it's not years. great well that's yeah. a good story that's really cool so and that, it's nice to see a successful marriage in the music business you know with all the touring because that's one of the things that people are always dealing with is like how, the loneliness can be really tough it's a lot easier now we can do yeah. things like this totally it, you know Mm -hmm. But back back in the days, I mean, I remember, you know, dating my first wife when I was making $200 a week playing clubs and my phone bill would be $500 a month. <laughs> just totally. my phone bill, you know, because they, you know, the, the monopoly, man, they just, they, it's ridiculous how cheap it is. And people have no idea how cheap this is, this whole yeah. thing compared to what we used to have to pay for terrible oh, yeah. lines of static. Yeah, totally. You'd have to, we would write letters from the road, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. and you'd buy the, those those calling cards and you'd stand at the payphone and you know <laughs> yeah 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 i remember i remember the first time i went to poland uh, our friend chris aiken the drummer that replaced your brother mm -hmm. of course he's a successful producer over in warsaw now yeah it's yeah. amazing yeah chris is a great guy i love chris and he once again another immense talent i can't believe how many talented people came out of that university in nanaimo yep uh, just an incredible array of just gifted musicians totally know? yeah you know? absolutely so you have the Took album coming out and you're also on Kelly Clarkson's show every so often with her band, correct? Right. Yeah. And how often, how often are you doing that? Is it just whenever well, you're called? Or? Yeah, it's whenever I'm called. Um, I still go and play with those guys if they need like a fiddle tune or if they're having a special, like I, I did a, like they had a metal day or a hard rock day where I came and rocked out and we played some Bon Jovi with Kelly and, uh, you know, I'll just sit in with the band every once in a while. But usually it's when they when they have a like a fiddle part that they need done, and I'll just go and because I, I, go ahead. I was just gonna say that I, you know we did they had every every show Kelly does a Kelly Oki song. That's how she starts her show, and she'll sing a cover tune of somebody else's, and she's she's done like four Shania tunes. So every time they do a Shania tune, they call me in, and I'll I'll sing backups with Kelly, or we'll do a duet together or something like that. Um uh, and. Okay, so because you're not actively in her band anymore, so they call you in as a, actually like an extra guy. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah, okay. I'm, not, I'm not in her band anymore. She only has a, a small TV band now. So. Okay, and yeah, and her show's been like a runaway success. Yeah, yeah. She they they started with a, a one year option kind of thing, and they're already in the second year, and 
she's doing great, especially on, you know, with COVID and everything, they have to have like a virtual audience. So. Yeah. And how are they, how are they running that virtual audience when you, when you're there performing, how does that look? So you go in the studio and where the people usually sit, they have a bunch of screens, like big ones. So they, they might have like 40 screens as opposed to, you know, 200 people. And they're just, they're sitting there live like we are with Zoom and they're watching the show and clapping and smiling and interacting and she'll interview them through, through Zoom or whatever they're using. And, uh, and then all her guests will also be in the same way. But some of them who are in LA, because you have to do a COVID test in order to actually be in the studio right. every time you, you go on the show. Right. So anybody in LA and, you know, and, and celebrities hate doing those kinds of shows, to be honest. Right. Uh, because they just rather be at home, right? right. Uh, so now they can by doing right. doing these Zoom interviews. They love them. I mean, things might not go back to to normal after this because everybody's like so used to how easy it is virtually. <laughs> Charles Charles popped up with some stuff here. He said he was reading on your bio something about you, the work you've done with Elton John and Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys. And what capacity was that? Uh, just playing with them on stage. Uh, not in their bands, but uh, we did some shows with them with Shania, and they got up on stage and played with us. So we backed them up and learned their tunes and whatnot. Hey, and hey so, Corey, Corey, does that does it get lost on you that you're playing with these other artists of that caliber? Oh man, and never that, does that hit you? It, I never take it for granted. Totally, like being from Moose Jaw, a, a city of thirty five thousand, like on the prairies of Saskatchewan, and and being on stage with Reba McIntyre or Shania Twain or Kelly or, or even just playing with Slash like I did uh, recently, you just shake your head and go like, how did I get here? Like, what's going on? Is this, am I dreaming? <laughs> well, you definitely have the talent and you certainly have the drive. And, you, and you've, always, you've always been a person that would do his homework. Yeah, I, that, yeah. that's one thing. I don't like to go into something unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing and worse than falling on your face. So, uh, can I ask something? Uh, how how close did you get to Elton John? Not very close. All all I really saw that was peculiar to me was was uh, how he would get his assistant to come out on stage, and that assistant's job was to bring the Pepsi or whatever the endorsed drink was at the time with like wine glasses and like run out on stage and and hold up this this basket of Pepsis or whatever, and he'd take a sip out of it, and then they'd run back. Are you, are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. Really? And he, had, and he brought his own china and stuff. Like, he wouldn't eat off it, the dishes that were in catering or anything. He had to have his own, like, china. Mm, but I, I guess see. when you're that rich and that famous, you can do whatever the heck you want. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. Is it but necessary? No, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm drinking out of my Tim Hortons mug. Just, just yeah. for you. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> What's Shania really like? And can I get her number? <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me just get call it up for you. I'll put it, I'll put it up on. The... <laughs> uh, no, she, you know, I wouldn't be, I, I think it's been 20 or 21 years now that I've been with her and I certainly wouldn't be uh, with her that long if she wasn't completely amazing to be around. You know, she's a hoser like, like us uh, from Canada. She's got all the same sort of Canadian values that we, you know, hold dear to us. Um, and, you know, we connect on a lot of, uh, a, a lot of those things on the music that we grew up with. She played all the same kind of circuits that we all played, you know, in bands. Uh, like you said, Mick, you played Deerhurst where she did a, you know, a residency there. Um, she's just been super nice. And, you know, it's, it's just been a real blessing. 
And I can't believe that, you know, it's been 20 some years that we've, we've done stuff together. Anyway, this has been great, Corey. It's been nice catching up with you and, and learning all this stuff because I learned a whole bunch of stuff about you today that I had no clue. Oh, wow. You know, it's great because, like I said, the last time we've been in the same room together was my garage in Coquitlam. Yeah, That's it's amazing how many years. Totally. I hope we can actually get together next time I'm in uh, your neck of the woods. Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand. <laughs>